everybody, August the 20th, year 2011, and hello, Patricia. Hello, Walden. And we have a special guest on the line. Yes, we do. The, the birthday boy himself, the one, the only, Mr. Frank Brzee. How you doing, Frank? I'm doing fine. I think I'm doing fine anyway. <laughs> Are you ready, Frank? I'm re well, I'm getting there. Okay, now just... Make sure that you're sitting down, because I don't do this very often to people, and I do mean two people. Uh-oh. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear Frank, happy birthday to you. That was very good. Very good. Love you, Frank. I'm so happy to be able to say that. Tell us how you're doing. Well, I'm doing pretty good. I can't walk yet, but I'm working on it. And uh, I run out of words when I'm talking, but I'm working on that too. So I'm gonna be, I'm gonna get there. Considering what I was about three months ago, I couldn't talk at all. Oh, Frank, I, I know. You know, I, I say to Walden every once in a while, it, it's just remarkable. You are at the top of my most admired list this week and for the last year and a half. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. It is our pleasure, and I'm confident that I'm not the only one who has placed you there. You really are remarkable, and each time I talk with you or hear your voice, you sound better than the time before. Oh, really? I'm, I'm, well, I'm quite serious. That's nice to know. Maybe Walden can play some recordings for you, um, you know, like a three-month intervals, and you would be able to tell the difference. You probably can't <clears throat> week to week, but from month to month, I'll bet you'd be able to pick it up yourself. You are just remarkable, and I'm so happy to be able to say happy birthday. Well, thank you very much. So how was your day, Frank? Did, did, uh, did, did uh, you have a birthday cake or anything? Yes, and we do. No, but he woke up in the morning and I said, Happy birthday <laughs> to you. Uh, and I didn't have anything on. Uh, <laughs> oh, she had something on. She had a smile on. Uh -huh. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Um, hi, Bobby. Hi. Hi. This is Mrs. Frank Brzee, Bobby Brzee, and... Um, can't wish you happy birthday. I can say happy day. Happy day. Happy day. Happy yeah. days are here again. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, we we're all we're all anyway. What did I get today? Well, I got I opened uh, the package uh -huh. and there were two Tommy Bahama shirts in there. Okay. And those shirts are two hundred bucks a piece. Uh -oh. You know. I had to hook a lot for that. Yeah. <laughs> And then uh, we went out to Burbingdale, Burberry, Burberry, uh -huh. and got uh, a sweater. A sweater cost. Uh, oh, you don't have to tell him how much it costs. Why? Because that's embarrassing. Oh no, it isn't. Yeah, it is. Oh, it isn't. Stop. Because no, no, ten dollars. There you go. Ten dollars. Uh, well, we got a nice one, and then people came over with cake. And, uh, Albert's family. Al Albert and his fa whole family. Oh, wow. And I had some cake, um, which I ate. Hey. Wallet. Yeah. And I had uh, tortillas. Uh, enchiladas. and swallowed. Oh, my gosh. So I'm on my way to recovery, I think. It's amazing, Frank. The family, I was telling the family the last week that it's quite a miracle where you are, Frank, considering... 
you're able to swallow things to do today, considering where you were a year and a half ago. It's it's, it's really amazing. Well, and it, and a lot of it because you worked hard, Frank. You've I, done it. I was just going to say, miracle is one thing, but hard work is what it took. And Frank, uh, I just I just can't believe what you have done and how much work you've put into this, and Bobby too. Gosh. Well, Bobby's done all the work. I just laid around. <laughs> oh, no, you've been good. She, oh. beat, she beat you twice a day, I know. Oh, well. He's got bruises all uh, over his body. Uh, uh-huh. Um, Bobby, I'm going to talk to you, Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, you two are a pair. I'll tell you. Well, this is just so wonderful to be able to say happy birthday, Frank. Are we allowed to ask what number this is, or is that... Sure. Is it, well, I say it's 83, but my wife says it's 82. You're old enough, Jesus. I'm all, old enough. <laughs> well, if you're, proud, if you're proud of 83, I'd, I'd be happy to give it to you. I'm 82. I'm 82, really. You're really 82. Yeah. Well, you don't sound 82 anyway, so. Well, I try not to. He looks 82. Oh, <laughs> no, I don't. You know, what do you think, Frank? The people in radio had great voices. You think about it. Janet Waldo doesn't sound like she's no more than 16. No, she doesn't. I mean, what to me? You know, after Wes had a stroke and after he couldn't talk when he came back, remember when we had him on the show, 92, he sounded great. I mean, a lot of people who use their voices, they sound really young. They sound really good. It's it, it got to be... The training in radio that helped it keep, keep it sounding good. It's got to be that, yeah. You know, it's got to be. I yeah. Used, I used to ask you what you had for breakfast and what you had for lunch, and you told me what you did for lunch. Also, vitamins. I asked you about um, vitamins that you and others took, and you told me where you used to go between shows from the studios. I don't remember that, oh, but I haven't taken a vitamin in for years. Well, you, you told me that everybody was well-preserved because you used to take breaks at the um, bar and grill across the street. Oh, that was a booze. It kept them preserved. I know. That's what he said. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was, that's right. <laughs> and you're also well-preserved because you took care of yourselves during those years. Yeah. Well, I took care of myself all right. I took care of myself, so I've been very happy. That's great. Well, Frank, what I'm going to do at Dr. Soap Celebrate Your Birthday, play one of your small interviews that you did with Jim Jordan, Fibber McGee. Any any stories about Jim, or what's, what's your memories about? Well, Jim Jordan was, he played um, uh, the part of Fibber McGee, and he was... Um, he looked very crusty, but he wasn't at all. He was really nice, and I had the opportunity of taking him home, taking him home from the Pacific Pioneers on Fridays after the, we had the uh, uh, the luncheons. Mm-hmm. So that's what I remember of him, and I remember that he was the nicest person in the world, just lovely. So in addition to a professional relationship, you had a form of a personal relationship with him as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Very, very personal. Probably the most personal of anybody uh, in in 
in the business. Really? Yeah. But then he was very old, and and, and everybody around here was very old. <laughs> so, and there's not many of us left. Uh, Tommy Cook is left, and uh, the gal you mentioned. Janet Waldo. Janet Waldo. Yeah, Shirley Mitchell. It was about, I was going through the Pacific Pioneer broadcast. It was about 11 from the golden days of radio. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more who, who worked in radio that are not members of Pacific Pioneers, but I'm just surprised just to see only about 11 of you guys from the golden days of radio who were actors or, or, of the membership of the 500 or so. Really? Yeah. Well, I knew it was it was getting low. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, that's what I think we're going to wind up doing, Frank, is playing a part of the interview you did with Jim. And I think I think in this feature, it's the one that you uh, and him read from a script when you had him do the oh, yeah, alliteration. Yes. Good. All right. So, we're going to do that, everybody. So, here we go. Jim Jordan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Frank. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> you know, Fibber McGee and Molly, for I guess more than about 20 years, was the most popular show on radio, and it had more listeners. And it was a, it was, it seemed like a homespun program, but it, a hometown program anyway. But it was, it was a, basically a comedy show, wasn't it? That's right. Oh yes, it was all comedy. But it was a comedy show. It was set up like a vaudeville show. That's right. It was. Uh, People spoke of it as a situation comedy, which it was not, mm -hmm. actually. I mean, Fibber McGee and Molly would walk down the street and meet all these people, and it was more like Alan's Alley than it was. <laughs> or like the Ed Sullivan show. He's like got a that. situation, and, and he uses all these acts. That's right. We didn't always do it the same way, but we used that a lot. Well, I know when you first started, you, you were born in, uh, in Peoria. Mm -hmm. and uh, lived there, and you started out in radio, or I guess tried to start out in radio by 19, what, 25 or so? Uh, uh, 25. We don't remember whether it was 25 or 26, really, actually. We were in business, of course, before, uh -huh. and uh, we uh, were in Chicago, and we went down on a dare. And in those days, uh, uh, the radio stations had somebody out on the street dragging people in that could <laughs> do anything, you know. Uh -huh. They just, you, you went and did it, and we went in and, sang a couple of songs, and that was the beginning. Uh, what, what kind of songs did you sing? Well, Shine on Harvest Moon, oh, or, were well, they or special material? Everything, or? everything. We did a, a vaudeville act in which we did, you know, all the ballads and, and comedy songs and everything mm -hmm. together, and I did stuff alone, too. Besides the comedy songs, did you start out in, in vaudeville by doing material, by doing a comedy routine, a la not, and Allen? Or? No. No, we were a, we were a piano act. We didn't speak. Uh huh. We didn't speak a word. When did you find out you could uh, you talked funny? After we got on radio. <laughs> well, I had uh, I had done it before too. I had done comedy before mm -hmm. in vaudeville. And you got a program. Uh, now I remember I've mentioned this program before. It was called Smack Out. Yes, that's right. And this is a a, a show that uh, that was a comedy, basically a comedy show with music. Yeah, that was a that. Well, drifted a little further away from comedy sometimes than Fibber McGee and Molly did. And that was half music. We sang on that show, too. Mm -hmm. We sang and we did these little, this dialogue. And the guy, the, the old guy ran a store mm -hmm. in uh, Columbia, near Columbia, Missouri. And uh, he, uh, he never had anything in the store. 
every, anybody come in they wanted anything, and he, he, he'd look for it, but he could never find it. Then he'd say, he's, well, I'm smack out of that, and I'll have it in the morning. He'd come in. And that was where we got that name. And that was the, his name was Luke Gray. And he became Fibber McGee. And after the Johnson Company bought, they bought Smack Out. That's what they bought. They bought that show. That's right. Uh -huh. That's what attracted them to us. And uh, we had done some, that was on in the daytime, and we had done some nighttime shows. Uh, and they knew this too, the Johnson Company. And um, after they bought us and decided to put us on, we were all ready to go on, and we didn't know quite whether to call us Marion and Jim Jordan or give us some kind of a name or something. And uh, Jack Lewis, who was the uh, uh, manager of the agency that was handling this, said, wouldn't it be nice if we could, uh, we had meetings every two or three days, you know, for weeks, you know, building this thing up and getting it ready to go on. Said, wouldn't it be nice if we could have give him a name instead of Luke Gray, a name that would be kind of synonymous with a liar, you know, which he was. Uh -huh. That's all the show in the beginning was just all horrible lies. So that was in this meeting, and the next day, when we came into the meeting, the next meeting we had, Don Quinn had a slip of paper about four or five inches long and just an inch wide, and just across the, was the name, Fibber McGee. And that was it? That was it. That's a great story. That's a great beginning. I've got, like that. I've got an old script here, an old Fibber McGee and Molly script from 1948 where you did uh, this kind of an alliteration thing. And if, if you do it, I think all our listeners would like to hear it. So let's read from right about there, okay? Let's talk about the time I was in the seesaw business back in Sioux City for the... What? You in the seesaw business? You mean I never told you about when I sold seesaws for the seesaw company that old man Seymour had in Sioux City? You never did. Well, Frank, I will. You see, I was a senior seesaw salesman for the Seymour Seesaw Company, and I sold saws on the side. When I'd start out with a sample seesaw and a sack full of saws, I'd sell the other saw salesman silly. Because I was as saucy as seesaw salesman as the other saw salesman ever saw. I could sell you a two-buck buck saw that would outsaw any buck saw you ever saw a young buck saw with. And for six bucks, I'd sell you a saw buck to saw with a buck saw on. I sold so many saws and seesaws that I got saw sick for saw selling and seasick for seesaw selling. And between the seesaw selling and the seesaws and the seasick seesaw sales and the saw sick salesman and the buck saw saw buck, and I never did. <laughs> About them, the door would chime and Molly would say something and someone else would come in. Gee, I don't know how you do that. That must you... be the most difficult thing in the world. We're going to close with one thing we shouldn't forget, though, and this was probably the most famous sound uh, that radio ever produced. You tell him what it was. Oh, yeah. That's the sound of the McGee closet. And it sounded something like this. Oh, my gosh. Where's my hammer? Where's my tool? I've got to make a crack. Where's my screwdriver? I don't know, Mr. McGee. I'm just a guest here. Oh, I know. I left the right hand off up. No, don't open that door, McGee. Last time I saw you was about two weeks ago at the at Century City, and that was Jimmy Durante night. 
Do you recall? And Bob Hope and uh, all the stars were there, Danny that's Thomas. That's right, that's right. Danny Thomas and Bob, two of the finest men that I know. And this is a pleasure being on this program, and it's wonderful of you to do this for the boys. Let's talk about you for a minute. You've been in show business for a long, 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 long time, 50, 53 years now, right? That's right. I started down at Coney Island as a piano player, uh-huh. and uh, thank God I got my health, and uh, at my age now, it's wonderful to be able to command the money I get and uh, the jobs that I get. I'll tell you, you have more vitality than I do right now, and your show tonight was sensational. Did you see the second show? Yes, I did. Uh, I wish the boys... Uh, I wish the boys overseas could see it. You know, one of the things I discovered uh, in listening to some of the old programs you did uh, 20 years ago, what I'm doing now, uh, by doing... Are you talking about radio? Yes, radio. Oh. Uh, talk, uh, I'm talking about some of the command performance programs that you used to do. Yes, I was on pretty near every one of those programs. And they were written by the greatest writers in the business, and they were really great. And everybody who was anybody was on that program every week. And it was really great. Well, and your program, uh, your Rexall show with uh, Gary Moore, was a very popular show. Yes, that was a very, very popular show. Gary Moore was great on us, and uh, we had a good show. And Alan Young was on later. That's right. Went on to become But never could match... Gary Moore. Never matched Gary. No. You know what I think I'll do for all the listeners? Let's go back about 25 years uh, for the next five minutes and play just a portion of uh, one of the shows. Thank you. Let's come on down up in Iceland. They've made their own paradise. You know, the the one that I, the routine that I loved best with Gary was uh, the one where he used to try to trip me up in the long words. Yeah. Where uh, he'd say, did you have a job, Jimmy? I said, yes, I got a job. And then he'd go on and lengthen it and lengthen it and lengthen it and uh, get tougher and tougher. And we got an awful lot of comment about that, about that routine. Well, James, haven't you heard? I've got a new job. You've got a new job? Well, tell me. Where is your new job located, Junior? Well, my new job is located in the vacant village in the valley in Vermont called Jamestown Jetty, Jimmy. Who do you wait for in your new job at a large and lucrative local laundry in the vacant village in the valley in Vermont called Jamestown Jetty, Junior? <laughs> well, I work with the dirty shirt and skirt squirter at a large and lucrative local laundry in the vacant village in the valley of Vermont called Jamestown Jetty, Jimmy. What do you do in your new job at a dirty shirt and shirt squirter at a large and lucrative local laundry in the vacant village in the valley in Vermont called Jamestown Jetty, Junior? <laughs> well, I'm a slip ripper and girdle gripper with a dirty you mean to tell me you're a slip ripper and girdle girder and a dirty shirt and skirt squitter and a large of Lucas of Lonely Town and a vacant village in London Town? Yes, I'm a slip ripper and girdle gripper with a dirty shirt and 
Jim's got quite a large and lucrative local London American village developed from Uncle Jim's on Jimmy, Jimmy. I hope he cares a ton. <laughs> well, that was Gary Moore and Jimmy Durante 25 years ago. Well, now, you were in, in vaudeville. Uh, well, first of all, you started on the east side of, of New York. Then you went to vaudeville. Uh, no, we went to nightclubs. Nightclubs. And then to vaudeville, and then from vaudeville to uh, musical comedies, and from musical comedies into pictures, radio, television. How did you feel the first time you were asked to do a radio show? Now, you're a visual performer, and you always have been, and radio was, was young when you joined it. What did you think about, about trying a weekly show on radio? Well, I didn't know how to tackle it, like you just said. You know, I was a sight comic, and, uh, but I think we, uh, we, uh, we solved that problem. Well, you've got a distinctive voice and style, That's so... That's right. That's right. Uh, you could tell my voice. You know a funny thing? They talk about, I put a little hole in the door, you know, yeah. where I live, and the guy had come to the door and say, is Durante in? I says, No. He's out. <laughs> and they could tell my voice in a minute. For for many, many years, you would say, Good night, Mrs. Calabash, on your radio show. Yes. And uh, I guess it was a couple of years ago you divulged who, who she was. That's it. My first wife mm-hmm. is Jean Durante. Mm-hmm. And uh, they thought I was kidding on the air, even Gary Moore. But then... After a while, they know I was serious about it. Mm-hmm. When I put wherever you are. Thank you. Jimmy Durante. I'm tickled that to be with you, believe me. I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. Thank you. We're in May West's glamorous apartment in Hollywood. And may I say it's a pleasure to be here. Mm, glad you made it. <laughs> May, this apartment's really fantastic. Could you give uh, our Weekend World listeners a brief description? I'd love to. The decor is white and gold. Uh, Louis XIV furniture. And uh, my boudoir is all Louis XIV. Even Louis would like to live here himself. <laughs> you know, and I notice you've got some beautiful mirrors. Yes. I like to see how I'm doing. <laughs> You know, your fans, May, must number into the millions. In fact, in colleges and universities like UCLA, they have May West film festivals that play to standing room only. Yes, it's wonderful. They still swing. Yeah, and now there's a new film that they can add, Myra Breckenridge. Can you tell us a little bit about the role you play in the film? The characterization that I play is an agent for men only. Uh, I'm really queen of the casting couch. And do we see the couch in the film? Oh, yeah. And it's in good condition. In fact, I had no springs put in it. A Mae West movie wouldn't be complete without songs and music. Do you do any songs in Myra Breckenridge? Yes, I have two songs. In, in all your past films, you've done the writing, all the dialogue. Now, since Myra Breckenridge comes from a famous novel, have you rewritten your part or done your own dialogue for it? Uh, yes, I'm sure you won't be disappointed. <laughs> Over recent years, we've seen some changes in the treatment of sex and nudity in film. What do you think of sex and nudity that we see in motion pictures today? Well, I believe uh, nudity comes under the heading of the art. And in the pictures today, they have lots of nudity. Yeah, if they keep it up, it's going to become a nut. <laughs> Your pictures of the 30s were considered scandalous then. 
and you helped to bring on censorship. Do you think that there, there should be censorship for adult entertainment? Yes, intelligent uh, censorship. One has to draw the line somewhere. May, do you think that the, this frankness in sexual matters has maybe gone too far? Well, it's about to go too far. They're taking away the glamour. You're right. Here's a question that I wanted to ask you for a long time. How would you, Mae West, describe sex? Oh, I don't think I should. <laughs> Let me put it this way, then. Uh, what's your definition of sex? Well, uh, sex is an emotion, in motion. <laughs> As we mentioned earlier, Miss West, the revival of your pictures in college film festivals has brought you a large following of fans uh, among young people. Is it true what I heard that some of your teenage fans are sending you gifts, even diamonds? Yes. I did receive a diamond necklace from a young man, about 18. I also met his mother, lovely people. Uh -huh. And I received a few other diamonds from other young men. That's what I'll send you for Christmas. <laughs> Do you think the, the male of this species is, is losing his sex appeal now? Well, not the men I know. <laughs> How about the female of the species? Oh, they're, they're in good shape. Any woman has sex appeal for some man. May, how about some advice on how guys can get a gal? Well, sure. Don't worry, boys. The gals will get you. <laughs> <laughs> Miss West, during the less broad-minded days of the 20s and 30s, when you were a stage star, you were arrested and jailed several times. And so you have some court experience. What do you think of the jury system? Fine for most cases. But for uh, some cases, I prefer the judge alone. <laughs> And I prefer Mae West. Thank you for joining me today on Weekend World. And I want to say that you've broken another record because next Thursday evening on Christmas Eve, on the two-hour special, you are the special guest star. And I know it's the first time in 32 years you've appeared on a radio program in front of a live audience since you were on with Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. So we'll all be listening this Thursday night. Thank you very much. Miss West, it's been a pleasure to have answered the most beckoning of calls to come up and see you. Well, come up again sometime, anytime, and I'll tell you fortune. The master of comedy timing was George Burns, but as he so often said, all he had to do was stand on the stage next to Gracie Allen and let her talk. <laughs> that takes timing. He knew more about show business than any other entertainer, and perhaps that was because he was in it longer than anyone. Over 90 years. George, welcome to the show. Thank you, Frank. You know, I've had three great thrills in my life. One was meeting the Queen of England in 1965. The second was... Uh, doing a, a record album with Jimmy Durante and uh, Walter Winchell. And the third one was seeing uh, a Burns and Allen show uh, redubbed with an audience. And I remember after the show, you said one thing I'll never forget. You said the audience never knows where to laugh. Did they, I say that? You said that. Well, Not I, to the I, audience that, did, that was doing the laughing. Oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't say that anymore. <laughs> I used to say that. I think the audience knows where to laugh. Do you think the audience now is as intelligent as they were? Uh, better, better, because they've uh, television has smartened everybody up. Everybody owns a theater. 
714-545-2071. You can call the first lady of Yesterday USA. She's here to take your call. At 714-545-2071. You have been a busy rabbit this week. Uh-huh. Anything you can talk about or should we just move on for now? Oh, well, let's see here. I got a haircut. This is good. We can see your face now. <laughs> Got a haircut. Let's see here. The governor came to my meeting on Thursday. No kidding. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which meeting? My wine club. The governor of the wine club came. Oh. Um, That's second best. <laughs> I'm just out wheeling and dealing, and um, I look like we'll be working with the sports network as, as one of my utter... Business ventures, you know, I'm just trying to create something for my free time, and we're just, we're just roaming hard, basically, I'm, uh, basically, you know, basically trying to bring, trying to bring radio back. Did I hear the words free time? Free time. I think it is an oxymoron to use free time and Walden in the same sentence. My mother, and I think it's probably true, I'm not bored. Uh, Hardly not boring either. No, I I do have not, that's not I my I I am blessed on belief that I'm I'm not bored and I got plenty of things to do, plenty of interests, and it's not like okay, what am I gonna do? I got plenty to do. If what I'm gonna do for that time, so that's what we got. And to be honest with you, see, I'm just, you know, I uh, just been contacting co- uh, co- corporations and uh, radio networks. Contacted over a hundred different radio networks this week. I didn't realize there were that many in radio, folks. One hundred uh, networks. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, over ten. AM, FM, where is which is dominant? A, uh, pretty much all AM. There's very little network in music. 
most of it's all in uh, talk, uh, radio. For example, there was um, only 30 religious radio networks. I didn't realize that. That I would believe. Um, there are uh, there are at least 20 public radio networks in different states. Never did realize that the public radio is broken into regional for each state for 20 different ones. That I knew. Uh, you have the big ones, NPR, uh, American Public, RPI, you have those. Uh, then you have the... You have the major syndicators. The biggest syndicator is in bankruptcy. Interesting. That's uh, a Citadel. They're the one that handles all ABC programming. That's a commentary on the state of radio. Uh-huh. Brief. Yeah. Oh, they had over 4,000 stations, and they're in bankruptcy. So your local, it's going to be interesting to see what your local ABC affiliate is going to be, everybody around the country, what's going to happen to them. And you're talking ABC affiliates in radio. Correct. Not not in television. No. Um, one day, maybe we can pour over the reason that an organization of that size, a corporation of that size, could tank. Uh-huh. What did they do? What happened and what's going on in the industry? That, that is true. That contributed to it. That, wow. That's true. Uh, and... I've worked my way into the major syndicator, into Premier, so I'm working with them on some projects. And I'm just basically trying to see if we can bring uh, the radio that we love, who listen to our, on Just the USA, bring it to a bigger base. So we'll see what happens. I'm willing to try. A lot of people are willing to say radio's dead and throw up their hands and go back to the real room. I'm not one of those. You know, I'm, I'm one of those who is always upbeat, positive, and let's give it a try. Radio we, isn't even on life equipment. Right. It is alive and well. Well, and... Uh, you know, it's a, it's a little bit... It's not a little bit. It is a lot less visible than the visual medium. Correct. But, boy, it's there. It's there. Also, it's interesting to see how much... Um, big radio chains. In other words, uh, to get on the big stage, a lot of time you gotta buy time. Mm-hmm. And oh, ab- yes, yes, yes. And for the LA market, everybody, uh, the fifth biggest station in LA, to buy time, it costs you four thousand dollars an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we looked in New York. You know, it looked like at least three thousand for. You know, one of the top stations an hour during the prime. It's amazing. It's interesting that's, to see. That's why it's such a hustle for programmers to get out and find advertisers. They've yes. got entire teams out there looking for advertisers to not only support the cost of being on the radio, but to give them some salary on top of it. That's right. And it's interesting to see why we gone to so many info commercial in radio, which I think is totally sad. Uh, you know, when I was listening to radio 30 years ago, you didn't hear the info commercials. Uh-huh. And I think that's sad. It's a sad case. But the same thing is happening on television, which just frosts me. I'm paying a fortune for cable TV. And the nighttime hours are dominated by paid programming. I think that is also explains why so many people. Well, we can talk about we can we can break this down even further. 
A, why so many people have their own personal libraries. They're just not happy with seeing something on TV, mm-hmm. so they'll pull out a DVD and watch it. Mm-hmm. And I was just sitting there looking at how modern technology has affected so many things of our life. Who would ever guess in our lifetime, Patricia, that we would be paying for TV, the newspaper industry practically dead, mm-hmm. radio exchange, uh, everything changing so quickly and so much, and I don't think we really know the, the complete fallout until another four or five more years. Yeah, and then the... The winner is going to be the Internet, even as an entertainment medium, not just for information or for YouTube presentations and things like that. I mean, it's already swinging over to an, infa, uh, an entertainment medium with places like Hulu.com, H-U-L-U.com. It has an extraordinary lineup of shows that we have seen on television but are being replayed. I think it's it's now part of a Time Warner collection. Mm-hmm. And what used to be free across the board is now paid, pres- uh, paid prescription. Paid subscription might as well be a prescription. It's that painful. Yeah. Um, you can get a handful of free shows, some of the older ones, but as you get to the more current shows, you have to be a paid subscriber. But they are arriving in high density. And you can type, of course, from your computer onto your uh, television and your big screen TVs. And I think that's where our future is. Most likely, for example. As soon as I'm paying to see commercials, why would I want to do that for much longer? you got two driving forces happening. Totally fascinating. And this could be even a dramatic shift, everybody. The generation that are young teens and younger are not watching TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, when they start getting money, when they hit the next four to five, six years, when they start to be uh, 16, 17, 18, start having spending money on their own, and once they hit into their 20s, they're going to be driving the market. And they're not watching TV. They're watching stuff on their computers. These kids have more money than we could ever imagine, and they are a major driving force in the market yeah. already. They, they, and so that's going to reshape. That's why a lot of you know network TV sets in trouble, and that's why the market's been spoiling so much. Mm-hmm. And and it's the network TV that's showing up on places like Hulu.com. Yeah, and also I. I guess the other point I'm going to bring it, I don't think at the moment, but I'll come of it. It's just, uh, it's going to, the next, some of the most wealthier people who are going to really make the money are going to be able to figure out how they're going to harness the internet as a mm-hmm. income generating source. Mm-hmm. And those people who can figure that out, they're going to be one that's making a living at this. And personally, I think the way it is, um, I think the days of asking people to pay for stuff is going to be gone. I think it will be all advertising embedded into programming. Your newspaper, your websites, everything. I, I, just, I, just, 
I don't think there's so many options. I think people who have to pay are going to look for alternative ways on different choices in the net to go get it for free. Yeah, and well, even the Internet is charging in many areas. I used to go to the New York Times regularly. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was one of my major sources of news. I would hop around the country. You know, I'd, I'd visit uh, a San Francisco or an L.A. newspaper once a week, and I'd go to New York once a week. And But for the most part, I'd, I would use the New York Times as the vehicle or the source of what was happening, and then I might go looking for other sources of the, of the stories themselves, but the headlines were pretty comprehensive. I am now limited to 20 articles a month for free. If I want to read more than 20 a month on the New York Times website, I have to pay for it. And that's brand new. Yeah. And then a lot of other newspapers are doing the same thing. We, you and I have talked about this offline mm-hmm. a couple of times, that the only way the newspapers can survive, they can't do it on straight advertising, on Internet advertising, which is a pretty lucrative source of income for them, but not enough to support the entire organization. So. Well, also, I think, and this is what I'm thinking, well, you're going to see the next big boom, is this is what I'm pitching the sponsors and advertisers. I think you're going to see more and more content, entertaining content, being on sponsors' websites. Um, for example, I know Pepsi have stopped spending money advertising the Super Bowl. They're going to take that money and dump it on their website. I think you're going to start seeing a lot of the website contracting personal shows, mm-hmm. audio, music to be put that way people can go to get their into and they're stuck watching advertisement of that one company. That's a, mm-hmm. I, I, I think that will be a factor. But what we are always going to have is our Saturday night family. Let's hope so. 714 545 2071.